0: A very, very powerful example that we have today about what faith does in the lives of God's people. That's what we've been looking at in Hebrews 11, what is given to us in Hebrews 11 to look at. If you haven't been with us, we're going through Hebrews 11, and until now, all the examples that we have looked at have been pretty much of individuals. Uh, To some extent, last week, it was sort of talking about the Passover. talking about Moses leading them in the Passover. It was still more or less about an individual. But definitely this week, we have an example of the entire nation of Israel, of their faith. Probably there were, at this time, one and a half to two million people in Israel. And so this is their faith as a corporate body of people. We know that many of them didn't have true saving faith. But all of them had faith after seeing all that God did on Egypt to step into the the uh, the, the, ton, the, the pathway that God had made through the sea and to uh, follow that in a, in a temporal kind of a salvation. We see later that with many of them, God wasn't well pleased because they weren't really looking to, uh, by faith, to have a, a real walk and relationship with God. They were looking just for the things of this world. But... Um, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful thing. For, and for anyone that may not be familiar, Israel was the nation that God chose to bring Jesus Christ our Savior into the world, his eternal Son. He came in, he became human flesh, the Son of God became human flesh, and he dwelt among us. God marvelously preserved Israel as his people until Jesus came. That was what he said he would do. He made himself known. Through his engagement with this nation, through his dealings with them, when they were faithful to him, then he would bless them and they would overcome their enemies. When they were unfaithful, then God would show his displeasure and bring their enemies upon them. But he would always raise up prophets and godly men that would restore them and bring them back again, again and again. God worked through them, showing us things about himself that we we learn from during that time and preserving them as his church in the world until Jesus came and then the gospel went out to the nations. So here we are as another nation, people from another nation, people from other nations who are serving God. The world needed saving because we're all estranged from God by sin, cut off from him. Not only does our sin cause us to reject God, to not want God, to rebel against him, But it also causes God to reject us. We're under his wrath and curse and subject to death on account of our sin. As a righteous judge of all the earth, he will allow no injustice to stand. He sent Jesus Christ, his son, to offer himself as a sacrifice for his people's sins. That was why Jesus came in the flesh. The good news for all nations is that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. They will not be destroyed by God's eternal judgment, but they will be shown mercy. Every person then who believes is pardoned and restored to God through Jesus Christ. The question for each one of you, whatever you have maybe said about this in the past, have you believed? Are you indeed now trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation? Because if not, you're still under the wrath of God. And there is no hope for you unless you repent and believe the gospel. The passage we're looking at today shows us a key time in the history of God's people. This happened over 3,500 years ago. That's something to think about, isn't it? When uh, this event that we're looking at, 3,500 years ago, about 1,500 years before Christ came. God had promised that he would take Israel and preserve them as his people and that this son would come to bless the world with salvation from sin would come from them. So he told Abraham, the father of their nation, an event that would happen within the next 500 years. That he would bring forth, that he would have descendants. His descendants would multiply, become a great nation. As we see now, there's one and a half to two million of them that are there. Six hundred thousand men were numbered when they went in, with besides women and children. These were men that were over a certain age and so on, and uh, that were fighting men. But anyway, uh, it was uh, over four hundred years. He would, he would, um, they would. He said that they would be enslaved in Egypt. And then he would bring them out with a mighty hand to show his power and and to establish them as that people in their own nation that would uh, be his people in the world and bring forth the Messiah at the appointed time. They would be governed by him rather than by Pharaoh, you see. And uh, then he would bring the Messiah and they would proclaim the, the ones among them who believed would then proclaim the good news of salvation in all the world. So God raised up Moses to lead Israel out of Egypt. He went to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and Pharaoh refused to let them go. So the Lord sent devastating plagues upon them, ten of them, and to persuade Pharaoh to let them go. Pharaoh's heart grew more and more obstinate. But finally, with the tenth plague, where all the firstborn males in Egypt were killed by an angel in a single night, Pharaoh sent them away, in a sense. But the verse we're looking at today speaks of what happened just after this. We read about it in Exodus 14 just a minute ago. Pharaoh changed his mind, and he decided to send his armies after them. No doubt he did not want to lose all that slave labor. But the scriptures show us that the even bigger point is that this man was so proud That he didn't want to be beat by God. That's why he kept going back. His pride would not allow, I can't bear this. And he would go back again with his hard hard heart that I will defy, I cannot let God beat me. and, And he ended up looking more and more foolish as he continued to do this. His heart was so hard. This is the madness of sin. That you try to fight against God, that you try to resist God as if you could. As, as we read, God led Israel to a place where they were actually hemmed in by the land when the Egyptians came with their horses and chariots. I'm sure they said God had directed them to that place, that spot. And I'm sure when they saw the Egyptians coming, it was like, Why, why did Moses bring us here? Why did God have Moses bring us to this place where we can't even go anywhere? Even if they could, they couldn't outrun the Egyptians with their chariots and everything and all their women and children that they had. So here they were with the hills and the the Red Sea and the the situation where, and then the Egyptians coming from behind, there there was nothing they could do. They were truly hemmed in. They were greatly distressed. We saw what Moses said to them, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. There was nothing they could do. So he, he tells them, just leave this to God. Then God parted the waters of the Red Sea and he commanded them to cross between the two walls of water and the dry seabed, and that's where our passage. We're going to read in just a minute the, the verse that we're doing today. It, it talks about that they had faith when they did that, and the reason it says that I want you to think about that. The sea opens up, and there's two big walls of water. It's like, okay, come on, <laughs> let's go. So, are, the, are those walls going to stay? Like, wh- what's going on here? What's, what is this about? And they trust God because they know what He's done, and they go on into the into the sea and they they cross over. Here's what uh, one of the commentators, uh, William Lindsay, explains. He says, convinced by the miracles Moses had wrought, and especially by the salvation of their firstborn from the stroke which desolated Egypt, they believed God. And with unhesitating step, they marched forward into the sea. And Jehovah, in whom they trusted, disparted the waters before them, so that they passed through on dry ground with walls of water towering above them on either side. What a bold attempt. What a marvelous result. What but God's promise could crown it with success. Okay, let's now turn to our text. And it's very short, just Hebrews 11.29, one verse. This is the word of God. Give attention to it. Hebrews 11.29. By faith, they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, whereas the Egyptians, attempting to do so, were drowned. And there we end the reading of God's holy word. May God be praised for giving us his word. It is given for our help. The story is not at all complicated, but you can understand this story. Israel is hemmed in. The Egyptians came in pursuit. Moses called them to look to the Lord for deliverance. They looked to him. He opened the Red Sea. By faith, they went across on dry land between two walls of water. The Egyptians pursued them foolishly and were drowned. It's a marvelous story. It's not a story that is hard to understand. So we're gonna focus on what reason this is given to us. What can we learn from this event? The purpose of this event itself was to bring Israel out of bondage so that they could be those people that would have their own land with God governing them and showing, revealing himself to really to all the world through them and bringing forth the Messiah by them He did this in order to carry on his work of redemption in the world. Very important purpose. But this event was also designed and orchestrated by God, not only to grant them temporal deliverance as God's people so that his redemptive plan could continue, but also to instruct both them and us in the way of eternal salvation from sin by Jesus Christ. Being saved out of Egypt was not to be saved by faith in God's promise to deliver from sin. It was a deliverance from uh, uh, slavery in Egypt, but that was a type of the salvation that we need to rest in, salvation from sin. We're not just looking to be delivered from oppression in this world or or things like that. We are, but we're looking for the ultimate delivery from our, our sin to be God's people and to live joyfully in his house forever and ever to be reconciled to God and many of them that was not what they were looking for we're told later as we saw earlier way back in Hebrews chapter 3 and 4 that with many of them God was not pleased they came out and went into the wilderness and they died in the wilderness as a judgment because God was not pleased because why of their unbelief so we need to understand that so this is this was given then to to be an illustration of our redemption from sin bringing us to God. And so we need to look at it that way and understand it that way. It talks about even our Christian life after we have been redeemed. See, they had had come to the Passover and they had offered up the lambs and their, their sins had been forgiven in that ceremonial way and they had been brought out and now they were going to serve God, and then they meet this opposition. And so they need deliverance from this entrapment that they were in, this bondage that they were in. This is what we're going to look at today. So let's consider what this passage says to us. Hemmed in, trapped. No way to escape. Desperation. You know, have you ever, have you ever felt that way? Even as a Christian, have you ever felt that way? That you are in bondage? That there's things that are holding you, that you aren't able to be what you, what you want to be, what you ought to be. That you cannot be what you ought to be, that what you're truly meant to be. That the beautiful person you'd like to be, the one who really genuinely loves other people, and who truly loves and serves God, is something that is beyond you. It's, it's, it's impo- even though you've come to Christ, you're looking to Him, Instead of gratitude, you find in yourself complaining. You're at least a little thing and you're off complaining again. Instead of enjoying the good things of this world, it's like you're in bondage to them. You, you want to enjoy food, but then it brings you into bondage. Or drink, it brings you into bondage. Or, or sex, it controls you instead of you, it. You, have, you, you see the, the laziness that when you ought to be working, then you're not working you know that you ought to serve others but instead you turn to foolish pastimes the internet frivolous things indulgence and in things that kind of you see the excuse making that's in you 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 cover up this stuff you see the bitterness that makes you cold and angry touchy and full of hostility the least little thing you see the envy That keeps you from being able to rejoice when someone else prospers. You kind of don't like it when somebody else prospers. It kind of rankles you. And uh, when you should be glad to see your neighbor prosper. You see the fears that paralyze you. No, you know God's in control. You're paralyzed by, oh, what's going to happen to me? What's going to happen in this way or that way? You see that you are part of a world that is also in bondage. A world that, where nobody really cares about others when you get down to it. Where God is not loved. Even in the church, you see that this is far too often the case. People that you trusted and disappoint you. People that you were supposed to take care of, or were supposed to take care of you, end up abandoning you. They really don't care. You see cursing and bitterness toward God instead of praise. You see selfishness instead of genuine service. And there is no way to escape. You cannot change, you try. The doctors and philosophers and priests of the world cannot change you or the people of the world. I mean, the, you know, here's a, someone that's a, a, a child uh, psychologist and, and they have messed up children. And somebody that's a, fam, a marriage counselor, and they and they get a divorce, and you know you're going to go to the, them for counseling. Like you know what what is going on with all of this? There's a serious problem. Too often, this is even the case also with ministers in the church. They have more problems than the people. It is a desperate and hopeless situation. Perhaps you're one who has been blessed to see the root of the problem. What's the root of the problem. You've come to see that the problem is worse than you thought it was at first. That we're shut up to bondage because we rebelled against our maker. We're under his wrath and curse. And we're headed for judgment and we're under judgment. You see the pride in you that keeps you from serving him and worshiping him. Again, like Pharaoh, it's as if you're competing with God or something. But in seeing this, you also see that there is forgiveness with God. You realize why Jesus came. It was to bear our sins that we might be forgiven. It was to be punished in our place so that we could be justified and set free and restored to God. That's the goal, to bring us back to God, to that harmony with God in all things in life. So you come to Him to be cleansed from your sin. What we saw last week that was illustrated by the Passover a sacrifice in your place, the Lamb of God in your place so that you might be forgiven. He is the one, Jesus is the one who is sent to take our punishment and God has declared that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And so like Israel, you have come to Christ in faith to be pardoned and you have set out now to serve God. He said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna serve God now. I've come to him. He's forgiven me. I'm forgiven of my sins. I'm going to go and serve him. You you are the Lord, you say to him. I am yours. But what is the reality of that situation? What happens? Well, you find that Satan and the world do not want to let you go. But I've been delivered from the world and Satan. but they don't want to let you go. They come after you. Satan cannot make you sin, but he can keep on presenting you with those sins that are the most enticing sins to you. He learns about you and he hammers you again and again and again with the sins that are the most tempting sins to you. He can package them to make them look so desirable and so rewarding. It's called the deceitful lusts that we have. He can lie to you and tell you that you can't help yourself, that you can't help but give in. That you're, there's no way that, but you, you must do these things. He can stir you, He can stir up the world also to come after you and to tempt you and to entice you. We, we see illustrations of that all through scripture. He plays us by relentlessly enticing us right in the very areas of our weakness. He can, he can play us. If I do this, this is going to work. That kind of thing. Satan can also orchestrate and stir up persecution against his people. And he can bring to us even the kind of persecution that he knows will be the most effective on us. You know, Some people can't stand to be looked down on. And so he brings that kind of thing. Other people can't stand to be deprived of the things of this world. Other people can, they they have a weakness in those different areas, and he can bring whatever is going to be the most effective. And this is what he tries to do. Keep in mind, of course, with all of this, that God carefully regulates what Satan does. He actually uses Satan's work to our advantage. We can see that with Job, because what happens? Somebody's attacking you at your areas of weakness then those areas of weakness are shored up. As by God's grace, you resist and you fight the battle. So that you become stronger. But yet, it's very difficult for us. And sometimes we, we realize that we're over our heads, that we're not able to fight and, and to succeed. So we still... what for, for those who are true believers, sometimes Satan's temptations will, will draw people Away from God, like we think about when uh, Peter was was tempted with persecution, and he denied Christ, and we think about with David when he was tempted by adultery, so he was you see enticed away, and Peter was kind of driven away from Christ by by persecution. Satan will use these things, and believers are subject. To that kind of thing and it brings great trouble and sorrow in their lives that doesn't really go away in this life like they still struggle with the with the effect of those things and the memory of those things david lost his children because of those things for those who are not true believers that are professing believers satan will use these things to bring them to absolute ruin to bring them away from god permanently So that they walk with him no more and they end up dying in their sins. But you see, God uses it to sort out the wheat from the tares. He really waits to do that till the end. But he does that in this life, sometimes through apostasy and these these means. But sadly, also, many true believers live in bondage to certain sins, to a certain extent. They're shut up to them so that their walk is continually weakened, so that their joy is soft, it's lost, and their ministry is ineffectual. They still go through all the motions of serving God. Some of them are not true believers, but others are hampered believers who go in and out of repentance and never really truly... Walk with God in a way that they might. The Lord has been burdening me of late with a great awareness of my own bondage and of the church's bondage. We have come to Christ for forgiveness, but we need to see that we're hemmed in by our sin. Satan and the world are in hot pursuit. Israel saw Pharaoh and his chariots. We need to see Satan and the world refusing to let us go. Paul, the apostle, godly man that he was, was painfully aware of the bondage that I'm talking about. He described it that way. In Romans chapter 7, we have these words. Romans 7.21, I find in a law that evil is present with me. The one who wants to do good. He's been changed by the grace of God. He wants to serve God. And he says, this evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. This is where my heart is. I want to walk with God. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. And he says, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Now catch the words there, bringing me into captivity, bondage to the law of my sin. We must see that there is no escape but from the Lord. You are shut up with no way of escape but one. The Lord calls you to faith. He says to us initially when we're lost in the world, He's calling us out to come and be forgiven. Look unto me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. He still says that after we're Christians and we're in a place of bondage, like Paul is talking about. The Lord says, look to me and be saved to us as his people. Not the initial pardon we're talking about here of justification, but ongoing deliverance from bondage that overcomes us as we walk with the Lord. He wants or don't walk with him, as it were. He wants us to be restored to that dependency on him that we should have had all along, a dependency on him. We were created with that initial dependency, and that's what we forsook in our pride. What better way to teach us as his people to look to him than to put us in situations where we see that we are shut up to bondage and unable to escape without his aid. Satan is pursuing us. The world is pursuing us. And we are being drawn away by the lust of our flesh. We are giving in. We are shut in by our own pride and selfishness. And we have Satan in the world relentlessly pursuing us from the other side. We need to see this just the way Israel saw it in that concrete way where here they are, mountains here, the sea is here, and the Egyptians coming on the path that we just came from. We're shut up and there's nothing we can do. As one who is shut up in bondage, you must put yourself entirely in the Lord's hands to deliver you. Who could be more reliable than the Lord? How reliable he has been for Israel. He sent the ten plagues just as he said. Each one he announced and then sent. He controls the forces of nature. He can move mountains if he wishes. He can go beyond nature. He always acts with wisdom. But best of all, he has made his commitment to bless each one of us who trust in him very clear. He has made promises to us. He has established covenants with us. He has moved heaven and earth to bring salvation to us, even bringing his son down from heaven. He has sent his son to redeem us. Will he forsake us now? No, he will not forsake us now. So Paul answers his own question about who will deliver me from this body of death. In Romans 7.25, right after he asks it, he says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with the mind I, serve, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. See how the Lord deli- liberates us. He sets us free from bondage, even though for us it is impossible to escape bondage. What a grand illustration we have of God's grace that sets us free in our text. By faith, they passed through the sea by dry land. By faith in God, He opened a pathway through an impossible place and they went through on dry ground. Israel was entirely hemmed in and to their amazement God opened the way when they looked to him. Moses stretched out his staff, a picture of Christ being lifted up and the sea opened. He makes the way of escape for his people when there is no way of escape. It is not that is this not what he has done for us in the gospel? We were shut in by our sin. We had no way to make atonement for our sin. What offering could we make? What tears could we shed that would ever take away our sin? No amount of pleading, no amount of sacrifices, no amount of tears could do it. But he sent his son to open the way of forgiveness. His gracious son went to the cross and he bore our sins to take our place that we might be set free. He made a way when there was none and now When we find Satan in the world pursuing us after we have come to Christ and we see ourselves being played by them, being brought into this thing and that thing by their hands, then will he not liberate us again? I find it very helpful to think about that with with Satan playing us, helps to resist it more. When you're tempted by sin, Satan's playing me. He's appealing to these things We resist this. We fight this. We overcome this. So, what will you do? What will you do with this? If you want to go back to Egypt, see the Egyptians coming, fine. Go back and we'll see what will become of you. Go on with Egypt. But if you want to go with God, then leave it to Him. That is not passivity. But that is giving yourself over to Him actively crying out to him as Paul did. Paul didn't say, well, I'll just forget about it. If God wants to deliver me, he can deliver me. No, Paul said, who will deliver me from this body of death? He cried out to God for that deliverance and he prevailed in that cry. Put yourself entirely in his hands when you find yourself in bondage to sin or in the place of temptation. Put yourself in his hands. How? Go between those walls that he has made. Go in the way that He has made, the walls, the, the place He has opened up through the water, the opening to get you out of that bondage. Don't try to go some other way. It won't work. It means pursuing Him. For us, it means pursuing Him earnestly by faith. We have to take this concrete picture of passing through the walls, of pursuing God by faith the way that He has appointed. Being steadfast, in other words, in the word and prayer. You continue in the word and prayer. You trust in Him. Not just attending church, but being diligent about it. Being engaged about it. Not being indifferent to it. If you're not, then what are you relying on? If you're not relying on Him, what are you relying on? No wonder your walk with God is dried up. If you're not in his word, you're not praying to him. No wonder. What do you expect? You're not in the way. You're not going down that pathway that he's opened up for you. This is my son. Trust in him. Here's my word. Cry out to him. Here's means of grace where you can have his aid, where you can go with him. Go down this path. No wonder that sin has such a grip on you. What do we say? Look to Him and be saved. What does it mean to look to Him? It means walk with Him in His Word. Walk in in, in prayer and communion with Him. How beautiful and how complete God's liberation is. He opened a way where there was none and you're able to walk in it. He keeps you by His grace. He does the impossible. What about those walls? Do you hold the walls up? No, you you pass through those walls. He's the one that holds them up. You can't hold them up. They don't hold themselves up. What I mean is He preserves you in the way that you would not be able to continue in without His preservation. And you learn that this is true. You learn, as a Christian, that if you step away from that dependence, everything's going to go foul. You have to come back to the way again. You have to go back and walk with God again. He's training you. He's teaching you. He wants you to do that. You've got to rely on Him. Some of you may have been tripped up in your faith because you had sins that you just couldn't overcome. You were in bondage to them. But you weren't really walking in the way that He has given you. The way of escape. All the while as you walk with Him, also as you do this, you have sweet communion with Him. You have the joy of fellowship with him. Even when there's terrible sufferings and all kinds of things going on, you have sweet communion with your Lord. You grow when you do this in the knowledge of him. That's what he wants, as you walk with him, trusting in him, staying in his word. He wants you to learn who he is. He wants you to learn how trustworthy and faithful he is. You see his beauty. You see his love. You see his greatness and his power. You see his faithfulness. You see his holiness. And you grow in your worship your praise and your adoration and look at what he does to satan and his minions he puts a barrier between you and them so that they cannot harm you this is shown in exodus where the cloudy pillar moves behind israel between them and the pursuing egyptians giving israel light and darkness. Does that mean that Satan never attacks those who are actually walking with God? No, I don't mean that. But it means that they are restrained when you're walking with God in faith, looking to do his will by his grace, keeping up communion with him. They're not able to get at you. Think about this. If Peter, instead of boasting and saying, I will never deny you, had rather at that time said, oh, Lord, have mercy on me. Help me so that I will not deny you. I trust in you, I'm going in your way, you see, the way of faith, then I don't think Peter would have denied Christ. But he didn't do that. He was away from God's way. I can do this, or I don't need to do that. And so he fell. So we look at what he does to Satan in his dominion, in his minions, he puts this barrier between us. They are not able to get at you in the way that they might if you were not trusting in God. But the Lord also does something else to them. He destroys them. Their assumption is that if you can walk through the sea on dry land, they can do it, too. They think that they can find liberty Think about the world. The world says we can find liberty and peace and prosperity if you can, you Christians can, and we can do it better than you. You can go to glory by trusting God, but they say we can go to glory by trusting in ourselves. Doing what we want, doing what, the way we want, going where we want. A rude awakening comes that they cannot do any of these things the way you do. The way you do it is by God's enablement, by faith that trusts in him. Yes, the day comes when, as this Exodus account shows us, the sea closes in on them and they perish in their way. They realize that although the Lord sustained them to go in their own way for a long time, God is holding them up the whole time. When they're rebelling against him, God is the one holding them up. That he will cease to hold them up. He will cease to hold up their way. He holds it up for us. He won't hold it up for them. The illustration of the Red Sea crossing helps us to see how preposterous and presumptuous the ungodly really are. How could it possibly turn out well for them to go into a situation where God is holding the waters of the sea back and they're going to go in there? Like, how could that possibly turn out well? They have already seen God sent ten plagues. They know that they know that God is working in his people. Would he continue to hold those walls of water back for them when God had opened them in order that his people might get away? You see how insane they are in their pride. That they go on and they say, we can go on and we can prosper when God's the one that's holding everything up. What's more, they had hardly they had hardly they had no reason to think that it would go otherwise. I mean, what could they possibly expect now? But you see that this is how the wicked are in their pride and unbelief. God has been preserving them, and they think that he will preserve them forever. You Talk to unbelievers, they think they'll go to heaven, don't they? We went to a better place, they always say, when somebody dies. Many unbelievers would say that if God were to make himself plain. As he is alleged to have done with these plagues. They saw all those plagues and they saw the Red Sea open up and all that stuff. They'd be among the first to believe. But that is a grand illusion on their part. The whole thing with the Egyptians shows us that it's a grand illusion. Because if you, if you would... The, the problem is not that you don't have enough evidence. There is plenty of evidence about God. And if you were given a whole lot of evidence and you saw all the things that they saw, you'd be just like the Egyptians. You would harden your heart and you'd say, no, I will not yield to God. I will do it my way. The problem with the ungodly is not a lack of evidence, but sinful opposition to God and pride that wants to make your own way without his help or any acknowledgement of him. So the outcome is this. God's people are set free by faith while the wicked perish in their unbelief. Hebrews 11.29 by faith, they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land. Think how wonderful that is. They passed through the Red Sea as by, they, they were shut up. They couldn't get out. God opened the sea and they passed through as on dry land. Whereas the Egyptians attempting to do so were drowned. They try to do their thing, it's going to end in utter failure. You simply cannot go on without the Lord please stand and let's call on his name Lord God here we are a people that for the most part here are those who have trusted in, in you professed faith in you who have trusted in you for salvation we are here before you right now Lord We're, we've heard your word And now we're praying to you. And Lord, we would ask you that you would have mercy on us and that you would grip our hearts with these things that we have heard. We pray, Lord, that we would not be content to live in some kind of bondage, but rather, Lord, we would come to you crying out to you for deliverance and that we would walk in that way, that we would go on with you, Lord, that we would go on walking with you, that we would walk through that, that path that you have made of Jesus Christ to bring us out, that we might be brought into your kingdom at last. Father, we thank you that already we are in your kingdom, but we're looking also to be um, brought to glory in your kingdom, be brought into your very house where we will live with you without sin and without all the assaults from Satan and from the world that hates you. Oh, well, Father, we pray that you would give us a great love for you, that we would desire to be all that you've called us to be, and we would see how sweet it is to be what you want us to be. That that's the way of joy. That's the way of gladness. Father, grant to us repentance from whatever hardness is in us, from the pride that is in us, from the selfishness that keeps us from, from really seeking you. Father, we're, we're working against our own best interests when we don't seek you. We're so foolish. We're like, we're like Pharaoh in that regard. How, how foolish for him to think that, that he, could go, he could go down in between those walls of water and, and somehow it would work out. This is the world. This is what they do every day. They try to go and achieve something, do something without your help. When you're the one that is sustaining them to do everything they do. And they go on. Father, help us to realize that, that we were created to be a people who depend on our God. We're not meant to be a people who, who carve out some independent way apart from you. It ends in utter ruin and failure. We see the condition of the world. We see the hostility that is in the world. We see the wars and the fights. And we see marriages that can't hold together. We see children that rebel against parents. We see hatred and bitterness and strife. We see selfishness. Father, we thank you that that you restrain even what the world might be like, that you restrain it. And that you bring all kinds of affliction to us that humbles us and and makes us less a, a little bit hesitant to go in the way that we might go. You think about how in times even in even we've seen in our neighborhoods where where the way of the police was blocked off by a closed road and there was more crime in that community during that time. We see how we're restrained by so many things. And if we were just left to do whatever we wanted to do, we'd be a mess. What if any individual were given unlimited power to do whatever they wanted to do, whenever they wanted to do it? We can't imagine what they would look like. Well, we can somewhat because we see when men have been given great power in the world We see how that someone looks at them the wrong way and they will order their execution. Father, there is such wickedness in us, such sin in us. This is what we are apart from you. And Lord, we desire to be what we can be by your grace, by your salvation, what you created us to be in the first place, that we would be those who bear your image and who live beautifully for you, O Lord. We, We yearn for that. We long for that we look forward because you have promised us that you will bring us to that. And we pray, Lord, that we would walk humbly with you in this world in the way that you have appointed, not in some other way, because other ways lead to destruction. It is your way that leads to life. We can have no assurance if we're not walking down that pathway that you have made, that pathway of faith in Jesus Christ, of dependence upon him, of communion and fellowship with him, of living unto him. We, we cannot have any hope at all of assurance but, Father, if we come trusting and walking, then, indeed, we shall be blessed. Oh, thank you, Lord. Thank you for what you can do and what you will do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated and let's come to the Lord's t- People of God, receive now the blessing of the Lord our God. He is able and ready to bless us. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. To him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen.